Welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, I'm going to do, so if those of you that know me well know that we're not going to go through Matthew 10 in one night, right? Yeah. Unless, unless it was like a five-hour Bible study. I, I anticipate that we will take four, maybe four weeks to go through Matthew 10. And then on March 2nd, it's Ash Wednesday, so we won't have a Wednesday night uh, study. Then we'll have, we'll do Ash Wednesday. And then I'm guessing March 9th we'll start, um, we'll start 1 Corinthians somewhere around March 9th or maybe March 16th. And then um, next fall, no matter where we are in 1 Corinthians, and I imagine it might take us a while to get through 1 Corinthians. This is, this, these are going to be deep dives here. Um, but next fall, we're also we're talking about doing a... Uh, okay. Timeless and Dimeless. Timeless and Dimeless. A financial class for people with no money. A financial class with people, for people with very little money. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're going to do three weeks on, on finances. Uh, we've had great response to that when we've done it in the past, and we have people in, in the congregation that are really good at that. And we're going to do three weeks where we actually interview three different people who have some background in that on, on just managing money and planning and how to budget and things like that. It'll be, I hate to use the word budget because that's like nobody wants to show up for that, but it'll be more exciting than that. But uh, we're kind of putting together a list of people that we would uh, interview for that, which we think would be kind of um, uh, fun and interesting. We'll do that for three weeks, then we'll go back to First Corinthians. So the idea is that every Wednesday night there's going to be something in here, and if I'm out of town or if there's some uh, health problem that I'm having, I'm thinking like about the surgery I have coming up. If there's some health problem that I might have, um, one of the other pastors will, will fill in for me. So there will always be something going on in here. Anyway, uh, just a little bit of background on. The, uh, so I'm going to go deep background. Uh, for some of you. Um, a little bit of background on the Gospels, which I think is interesting. Matthew is the longest of the Gospels. It was written probably in the late 60s or early 70s. So um, sometime around the time that um, Rome came in and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple uh, the second time. And um, uh, Matthew is the most Jewish of the Gospels. So you're going to find all these genealogies and all these references to the Old Testament in Matthew. And in Matthew, the clearest picture of Jesus as all three, prophet, king, and priest, come through. Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. Mark is written with... Uh, the Mark's favorite word is immediately, or just then. The word translated that way. The, the action goes very fast. And he uses an economy of words. Uh, if you've ever read Mark, it's very quick. And he's very fast moving. And he'll have five different stories in a chapter, whereas Matthew might have one or two in, in a chapter. Um, and Mark is, and, and by the way, Matthew's written to a strictly Jewish audience who are Christians or are thinking about becoming Christians. Mark is actually written as sort of a, a subversive text and like a Greek tragedy, okay? And it's the most Roman of, of the Gospels in that it's written probably to people in Rome, 
because most people think that it was Peter's a gospel actually who's and Mark was writing it for Peter before Peter died in 68 AD and what was Peter's last job with the church he was the Bishop of Rome that's right so he was the first Pope so he would have been in Rome and that's where this would have been written and it was written kind of subversively trying to point out to Romans that the real king is actually Jesus it's not Caesar because the Caesars always had this sort of divine idea that they were also sort of godly, which is always interesting. Not unsimilar to our politics today. At any rate, um, you're supposed to laugh at that, Chuck. At any rate, um, Luke is uh, the most Greek of the Gospels. Luke is writing to his friend Theophilus, who's a Greek guy. Luke is a, is a, um, he's a doctor, but he's also a master historian. And so he researches this stuff tremendously. And, and Luke is the upside-down gospel. It, he's turning the world upside down with the gospel. And it's, um, I love Luke's gospel for that. Uh, it, and you find a lot of things in Luke that aren't necessarily in the other gospels, although it's still considered one of the what's called synoptic gospels. Synoptic meaning same I. That would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then John is completely different. Luke is probably written in the mid-70s. Mark was written in the 60s also with Matthew. Luke was written in the 70s, and Luke probably used some of the material from Matthew and, and Mark to be able to write his gospel during his research. And then John was written probably in the late 80s, early 90s. And John is written to anybody and everybody. And it's, it's to demonstrate that Jesus is the Logos. He's the Son of God, and his purpose statement is, I'm writing this so that you might believe. That's just it. And that's what the gospel we, that we've been obviously been going through on, on Sunday morning. So um, that's sort of an overview of the Gospels and their differences. They all have different audiences and different purposes, but they're all talking about Jesus in terms of him being the Savior, and that's important. Um, now, in Matthew, I think tonight we might get through verse 7, might, we'll see, um, of chapter 10. In Matthew, there are five major discourses in Matthew. The first discourse is chapters 5 through 7. That would be known as the Sermon, on the, the Sermon on the Mount. Right. That's the most famous discourse in Matthew, right? Sermon on the Mount. And it's a discourse about um, what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. So literally, it's, it's, it's somewhat political because it's talking about how to be a citizen in the kingdom of God, how to live out your life in the kingdom of God. Matthew 10 is the second discourse. This is the missions and characteristics of a missional disciple. Of a missional disciple. That's chapter 10. That's what we're going to look at. And I'll explain why I think that's important to look at. The third discourse is the mysteries of the Messianic kingdom in Matthew chapter 13. The fourth discourse is the characteristics of life in kingdom community. That's different than being a citizen in the kingdom of God. It's characteristics of what it's like to be in a relational kingdom community. And that's chapters 18 through 20. And then the last discourse is chapters 24 and 25, which is the delay, return, and judgment of the Messiah. So if you're wondering about when Jesus is coming again, read that last discourse. And it'll be all clear for you after you read that discourse. Okay? So we're doing discourse number two. 
Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the context now of Matthew 10 in particular. Throughout Matthew chapter 9, Jesus heals several people. And he does miracles and signs. And then he ends chapter 9 with his declaration that the people, and when he says the people in this particular case, he's talking about the Jewish people. He's saying the people are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So right out of the gate, I think the end of chapter 9 uh, provides some people with some questions. Why, why is he saying uh, these things? So first of all, there's two questions I want to, want to talk about. Why does Jesus say that the people, these Jewish people, are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd? Why do you think Jesus might be saying that? I would say because of That's exactly right. What were the Jewish, the, you know, I like to call them the perps, the professional religious people. What were they doing in their job? Just building themselves up. They were the shepherds of God's people. They equated themselves with the, with the Old Testament prophets who spoke truth to power and warned the people about their rebellion against God. They equated themselves with those important people, people like Jeremiah, Isaiah, uh, Amos. They, they equated themselves with them, but they, they weren't acting like that at all. They were about power, status, and wealth, and how to build up their own power, status, and wealth. Okay, so that's right. So they weren't shepherding the people, and in fact, they were harassing the people. They were harassing the people to do things that they would never do themselves, so, um, what, is the, what is the saying that you see all over the internet right now? Rules for thee, but, rules for thee, but not for me. So they were like that. And uh, they, they, were, they were making the, their people that they were supposed to be leading and, and, and shepherding miserable. And so then the second question that comes is, what does he mean when he says the harvest is massive, but there aren't enough workers? And it's related to the first question. So what would the answer to that be? These people are looking around for answers. They're looking around for how they can figure this thing out, and they're not getting any help from the people they're supposed to be getting help from. So what are the, what are the implications for us in the midst of that? I mean, that question right now, I think is true as well. I am, I am hearing as a pastor and reading as a pastor Oh, the church is in the, at the end of its days. The church is in trouble. The church this, the church that. The church better figure this out. The church better, fi um, the, the church better change. The church better get relevant. The church better cave into culture or the church is never going to be. By the way, I heard this all through the 90s too. And it wasn't true then either. I hear very few people saying, gosh, you look around culture right now. I feel like people are harassed and helpless. I feel like there are people without a shepherd. They're, they're looking for a shepherd. They're willing to attach themselves to anything for a shepherd. And actually, we might actually have the answer. And it's the gospel. So I feel like there's a huge harvest out there. But most of the workers are sitting around going, we're in big trouble. <laughs> That's what I feel like. Anyway. 
And so just as a personal point, it, it kind of makes me feel like even though I'm 62 and I'm really tired, anybody else tired and in their 60s? And you're not even in your 60s, you're in your 20s and you're tired. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, even though even though I'm really tired, I'm also just in a sense energized about the opportunities that the, the church, I think, the church has. Anyway, all that aside, so these statements at the end of chapter nine lead into some fairly intense private teaching. This is a big difference between the Sermon on the Mount and the discourse in chapter ten. Sermon on the Mount was very public. This is Jesus going backstage into a soundproof room. Those of you that remember the um, the show Get Smart, the cone of silence comes down. Okay, gosh, more people knew about that than I thought. That's amazing. Okay, so the cone of silence comes out, and he's just talking to his disciples, and he's giving this is private teaching and direction that Jesus gives his disciples in chapter ten, but Matthew records it for us, so it applies to us as well. And this teaching is at times, and this is what got me really interested in maybe teaching this. Part of what got it. The teaching at times seems murky and a bit coded. Like you read some of these verses and, and you just, I, I don't even know what that means. Did that really happen? How do we explain that today? So some interesting stuff. And, and I think some of these verses causes some consternation or people get vexed by it. I love that word vexed. I, I, every time I get a chance, I work that into a conversation. Um, and so I think it would just be helpful to do a deep dive on teaching on this. I'm, I'm so fascinated the church, we always get excited about um, spending, and we teach all the time on the Sermon on the Mount. What's the next sermon series going to be? I know, let's do the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody gets excited. And we should, and we should. But I've never heard anybody say, hey, let's get excited about Matthew chapter 10. That just never seems to happen. So I'm the one who's trying to get excited about it. I think it's important. It's just not as well known. That's why I wanted to do it. And I also wanted to do it, honestly, because um, uh, on Tuesday mornings when I just read through Scripture, we were reading through Matthew about two months ago, and I'd already decided we were going to start with Matthew or with uh, 1 Corinthians as our first study. And I'm reading through Matthew 10 out, out loud, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I, I, have to, I need to know more about this. And the only way I might need know more about this is if I decide to teach it. Then i got to actually study it and figure it out. So... That's what we're going to do, and then after a few weeks, we'll go to 1 Corinthians. And then what do you think we're going to do after 1 Corinthians? That's amazing. You guys are so smart. Yeah, okay, yeah. So anyway, uh, we t because we teach verse by verse at Redemption, we tend to avoid longer books on Sunday mornings. And so I don't see in any, any foreseeable future us going through First and Second Corinthians. And I think they're incredibly helpful and applicable and important books, and that's why I wanted to do those. So here we go. A few more background items. To, I, I love background to consider as we work through. Jesus has now stated his mission, and he's recruited his yoke of disciples. That's mostly, mostly chapters 3 and 4. Chapters 5 through 7, he gives a standard of discipleship of what it means to follow him and be a citizen in the kingdom of God. Chapters 8 and 9 establish his ultimate authority because he heals people and does miracles. He is sovereign over creation because he is the creator. And he demonstrates that by doing supernatural things. And that demonstrates his authority. And now in chapter 10, he's alone with his disciple. This is insider information, and yet it's recorded for us. Here's a little outline of what we'll look at in the next few weeks in chapter 10. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is said to describe the characteristics of disciples living in 
uh, a missional kingdom life in submission to God. Chapter 10 is said to describe the characteristics of the disciples who are specifically living, living a mission-driven life on behalf of God. And several principles will emerge. I've got seven of them. First of all, God's order and plan for salvation history is reiterated and affirmed in Matthew chapter 10. There is actually kind of an order and a, a, a plan for how salvation history unfolds. And it's reiterated and affirmed here. The disciples of Jesus receive a measure of authority from Jesus. We're going to talk about that right out of the gate in verse 1. Uh, mission is the responsibility of all Christ followers, whether they live in a localized, in-context situation, like all of you, or they are going to the ends of the earth, such as Lacey Floyd, who is uh, living in the Middle East. Okay, And we're, we are her sending church. Um, Fourth, this one's really going to shock some of you. Um, followers of Jesus can expect opposition and persecution. Anybody shocked by that? No. Yeah, okay. Fifth, a disciple's power and guidance comes from the Spirit of God. Sixth, being on mission for Jesus includes spiritual transformation of the disciple on mission. And number seven, in all of it we need to remember that it's God who is sovereign. God is sovereign. So here we go. Let's get started. Verse 1. And Jesus called to him the twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. What the heck? That's a big call. Isn't that interesting, though? Doesn't that engender some questions, though, right out of the gate? Okay. So, in this verse, a couple things just to start with. The number 12 is important. Yes, yes, 12. He's got 12 disciples. The number 12 is important. Yeah, yeah. 12 tribes of Israel, all that. We get that, okay? Including the references in Revelation. But what about their ability to cast out demons and their ability to heal? So, the first question I have when I approach this is, did they actually do this? Were they capable of doing this? Did they really have this power? And the answer is yes. The Bible says it. Why would, they, why would the Bible say it if it wasn't true? If they didn't have some success in doing it? We know they weren't perfectly successful. But we know they had some successful. Also, it happens in the book of Acts. So the Acts, of, the Acts disciples were somehow able to do this. Okay? But then that sparks the next question, and here's that next question. This is a little bit tougher. Why can't we? Anybody ever ask that? Why, why, why can't we do oh, that? Yeah. yeah, I would think so, right? What's the deal, Jesus? Okay, all right. Now we're going to deal with that later tonight. <laughs> Okay, but why? why? Why would you deal with it now? I'm going to get to it. But I think there's actually something more important to see here that Matthew is actually trying to get at. We run past the important thing to get to the what about me stuff. That's the problem. And I understand the what about me, and we'll talk about that. But there's actually something more important going on here. And, and here it is. Under whose authority are they able to do this? Yes. Okay, yes, thank you. Okay, but... How, how often is that lost? 
Right? Yeah. All the time. It's under Jesus' authority and only under Jesus' authority. Far too much of this stuff that we see today, this stuff like this that's going on, if it's even real, if it's even real, I, I don't know if you ever like watched that, what was that Netflix special about the gospel in America? And um, Benny Hinn's uh, nephew, Costi, who actually leads a church out in Gilbert, was a big part of that, very, very interesting. Okay, if it's even real. But the problem is, too much of the stuff we see today, especially in America, is about the celebrity affirmation and exaltation of the minister who is doing it, not really about Jesus. There might be some, some lip service given to Jesus. But it's really about, it. here you go, it's about the Jewish professional religious person's status, power, and wealth. That's the problem. Okay? So in my opinion, that disqualifies it right there. Jesus isn't going to honor something like that. I don't think. Okay? We have no authority to do this. We have no authority to do this. And so when someone is healed of cancer, which happens, when someone's healed of cancer, for instance, it is the authority and power of God that did it. And it's done for somebody who is in submission to God and who has faith in God and, and is and recognizes and acknowledges out of the gate God's glory in it happens. And also, just because this can happen doesn't mean it will happen. Doesn't mean it's going to happen for us or any of our loved ones if they're sick. We have to remember that the journey God has for each of us is going to be different. Each of us has very different divine purposes and reasons for the situations and circumstances in our life. And many of the reasons and purposes of that, we may not even know this side of heaven, but it'll be all made clear to us once we're with Jesus. That's the faith part. And, and I know that um, it's easy for somebody who's had a relatively easy, uh, free of suffering life to say that. But regardless of what happens to me tomorrow, it's just true. I mean, I could... You know, I could end up being diagnosed tomorrow with cancer. It's still true. That's still true. And if I whine and complain about my cancer, y'all remind me of that, okay? <laughs> All right. By the way, I don't have cancer, so don't even... Oh. Foreshadowing. Okay. So here's the other thing that we need to see. They were... All, this is really big. This is a big thing for me. I... It just is for me. They were also supposed to cast out evil spirits. Okay, what are evil spirits? Demons, yes. Supposed to cast out evil spirits. Demons. This is a reminder that everywhere that the gospel goes, there's going to be spiritual warfare, there's going to be dark resistance, and there's going to be demonic activity. That's just true. If you think that planning a church and having wonderful success as a church planner is going to be a smooth ride without Satan taking notice and deciding he's going to try some things. And by the way, he's going to try things that you never thought of or that I never thought of. It, his thing is not a full frontal attack. You know why he doesn't do full frontal attacks? Because we're going to look at the full frontal attack and go, that's a problem. <laughs> we're going to recognize it. 
Paul describes Satan's ways, his methodology, as schemata. That's the Greek word for schemes. He schemes. He's clever. He's way more clever than I am, way more clever than you. But he who is in the world is not nearly as powerful as Jesus. We've got to remember that. Okay? The only power we have in the face of that is not from us. We can't pull up our spiritual bootstraps and fight this. It's going to be by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? It's from the resurrected Jesus, the filling of the Holy Spirit, and the authority and the holiness of God. So, I think that's really important too. Uh, so the two questions, getting back to this, is this happening today? And if so, why can't we seem to do it all the time? Or at all? First of all, it is happening today. Not all the time. It's not the standard operating procedure. Uh, it is rare compared to the corruption that's in the world. It is rare. We, we need to remember all disease, all disease is a direct result of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. All of it. It's, it's a manifestation of sin nature. Okay? Sin broke everything in Genesis chapter 3. It broke our relationship with ourselves. We're divided against ourselves. I hope you understand that. Our relationship with ourselves is messed up as a result of sin. Our relationship with each other is messed up as a result of sin. Our relationship with God is messed up. The first thing that Adam and Eve did was they hid from each other and hid from God. And then they started blame shifting. They did a lot of whining. Doesn't this sound familiar? <laughs> you know? Okay. But here's, here's another one. Those are the three relationships that were broken. Here's the fourth relationship. Our relationship with the creation is broken as well. Yeah. Creation has been corrupted, and then we add on to that with our sin, with how we abuse creation as well. I know you're sitting there thinking, man, Frank's become an environmentalist tree hugger kind of guy. Okay, not in that, not in that vein, but you need to understand that, that from a biblical standpoint, yeah. I am. You know? And here's the other thing. What if somebody does get healed? Okay? If Jackie got sick, terminally ill, I re, all right, let me put it this way. I remember when uh, Susan Schrader got, Tom Schrader, our founding pastor, when she got um, uh, breast, cancer. breast cancer, it was a particular kind that's very deadly. I can't remember the name of it, but it begins with an A. Anyway, um, and, and everybody, you know, prayed for her healing. And that would have been great. But here's the thing. Even if she gets healed, she's still going to die. I know that's a morbid thought, but she's still going to die. So even if somebody does get healed, our future is that we will eventually die anyway physically. I know some of you think I've got this obsession with death. It's not that I'm obsessed with death. It's just that I, I'm not that upset about it because, you know, Philippians 1, if I'm not here, I'm going to be with Jesus. That sounds... I love you all very much, but it actually sounds a little bit better, okay? Um, but I do admit that I'm not excited about how I might die. I don't want to die screaming my last five minutes in a plane going down or, you know, I, I really hope I die in my sleep. I hope, I, I have the Woody Allen approach to dying, you know? I, I, I'm not afraid of dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens, okay? So, <laughs> but you never thought a pastor would quote Woody Allen. Anyway. Um, but everybody's going to die sooner or later. Even Lazarus died. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> At some point, 
At some point, I wonder if Lazarus is sitting around the campfire with Jesus going, oh man, i got to go through this again. That stinks, you know. Anyway, couldn't you just leave well enough alone, you know? All right, second, why can't we do this? Now, I hesitate to answer this question because whatever answer I give, some people will be tempted to try to turn the answer into a formula or a methodology for it to work for them, for it to happen. Because I'm going to talk about how it's supposed to happen. But if you turn it into a methodology or a formula for how it's supposed to happen, it won't happen for you. Because your eyes are on the wrong goal again. It becomes just magic for you. Okay, it's just a magic for you. So I believe it is possible for, quote, us to, quote, do it. That's in quotes because it's, it's only by the power and the grace of God. Okay? But here's what happens when we face something bad. And I know this autobiographically. Okay? Uh, the biggest challenge when we face something really, really bad that we want God's rescue from, for instance, cancer, is our response is usually to pray and go to God with it as, what, the last resort. The first thing we do is we gotta make a bunch of appointments, and we gotta see if there's a cure, we gotta figure that out. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. Please don't become those those people who say, I'm not gonna go to the doctor. Don't do that either, okay? But the point is, is that the prayer and, and the, having faith in God is like an afterthought. Usually once you realize that the doctors can't help you, then it's like, well, God, there's nothing else left to do but to pray. Mm-hmm. And we should be starting it with, with the prayer, okay? Uh, Keller once said, you know, we're so quick to, uh, to tweet, to post, and to put something on is- Instagram, but we treat prayer with this uh, ethos of, of uh, delay. And, and that's a real problem. So I'm sure you can see the problem. That's really not a stance of faith. But again, don't turn that into your methodology. Don't say, okay, I've got cancer. <laughs> Last thing I'm going to do is go, go see a doctor. Don't, don't do that. Okay. Um, turning it into a methodology, God's probably not going to honor that. Because it's really supposed to be for, while it is supposed to be for our good, the primary thing is supposed to be for God's glory. And believe it or not, even if we have to go through it and we die from it, there's good in that. And it's for God's glory. Now, we may not be able to see it, and we may not like it. Just because something is good under God's definition of good doesn't necessarily mean we're going to enjoy it. You know, Romans 8.28, And we know God causes all things to work together for good. For everybody? No. For those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. But that doesn't necessarily mean that what we think is good is what God thinks is good. We need to remember that. So I would argue this about verse 1. The point of verse 1 is not for us to figure out how we can cast out demons and heal those with, the, with disease. The point of verse 1 is to remind us where all authority comes from. That's the point. But we get really hung up on that other stuff, unfortunately. It is also, though, to remind us, I think, to remind us that there's spiritual warfare everywhere that the follower of Christ is going to go. I... I wish I had a better way to handle people who come to the church who are searching for a way to remove all tension, all problems, all challenges, and all all suffering from their life and thinking, maybe it's Jesus, okay? Because Jesus is the first one that will tell you, that's not what's going to happen. It's going to get worse in some cases for you, okay? And we also need to realize, here's the other thing we need to realize, 
Um, Tom was really good at teaching this stuff. Disease and spiritual warfare are temporal. They're passing away. They will not be with us in eternity. It's why Tom once said, um, remember, no matter how long it lasts, uh, remember, no matter how bad it gets, it can only what? Last a lifetime. Yeah. (laughs) No matter how bad it gets, it can only last a lifetime. That's actually good news because we're going to be we're going to be with Christ for quite a bit longer than we're going to be here. Okay. So verses two through four. The names of the twelve apostles are these: first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Uh, Okay, he names the disciples, but there's a couple of descriptors in there that I think are worthy of pointing out. Is there something a little bit odd? By the way, two of the people are described. Anybody want to throw something out? The tax gatherer is the author. Tax gatherer is the author. That's Matthew. But what does the tax collector do. That's Matthew. He's a tax. That was his vocation before he went with Jesus. What does he do? He's not taxing Jews for Rome. He's a Jew who sells out to the Roman government. The Jews hate the Roman government. And now he's making money by taxing Jews and collecting more than he's supposed to. Because that's how you made money as a tax collector. So he's oppressing Jews. He's a Jew oppressing Jews as a tax collector. What does the zealot do? Murders them. He murders tax collectors. That's <laughs> exactly right. In the most simplified terms, that's exactly right. You have a tax collector and a zealot, and they're both now in the yoke of Jesus. Okay? Imagine putting Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton in the yoke of Jesus. Okay. That would be way calmer than Matthew and the zealots. Way calmer. Now, it might be more interesting than Matthew and the Zealots, but it would be way calmer. Okay. So what does that tell us about being in Christ? Crosses all barriers and boundaries. Crosses all barriers and boundaries. What else? Something back there? I said they overcame their enemies for the love of God. They were able to overcome their enemies because of the love that God gave them. So here's something about agape love. You know there's five or six different Greek words that describe love. You know, ancient Greek words. All of them except one are about the worthiness of the one that you're loving. You you love a person because they're somehow worthy. Uh, They're beautiful and sensual. That's eros. They... um, uh, pragma, it's, it's practical to love them because they fit with you really well. All these different loves. And, and it's the worthiness of the one being loved that's drawn out. Okay, Agape love, which is the love that's made famous by the New Testament that Jesus started. It wasn't very common before the New Testament. Jesus used it. Paul used it all the time. Agape love is love that is selfless, unconditional, and compassionate. It's not rooted in the worthiness of the one being loved, but rather... It is rooted in the character of the one doing the loving. And Jesus says, you are going to love others because I have loved you first. It's out of the overflow of God's love for us. And what was worthy about us that caused God to love, uh, to love us? Nothing. 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 Exactly. So it's agape love that we're loved with. Jesus even says in the Sermon on the Mount, agape your enemies. 
It's as if he's admitting to the people listening, I know that you find absolutely nothing worthy in your enemies to love them, but you were my enemy before you came to me, right? You know, you were my enemy, and yet I loved you, so now you love your enemy in the same way. That's really hard. I understand that. But also, if you think about it, in marriage in particular, all these different loves that we have in marriage that are worthy of, your spouse is worthy of all these loves, that's wonderful. But what about those times when the worthiness of all those loves isn't enough? You need the agape love. That becomes the covenant love. That becomes the, this isn't a transaction, this isn't a contract, this is a, I'm going to love you even when you're unlovable, even when I don't feel like it, because I'm called to do that, because that's the way I was loved. Okay? So we're able to overcome all these things, and it also should help us to understand that at times we have to put aside our personal preferences for the greater good of the, of the community. The American church, unfortunately, has become all about personal preferences. You know, we shop for churches. And what we're shopping for is, is things that we prefer, you know. And, and uh, that's too bad because uh, literally people give up good, sound doctrine for the wrong preferences on whatever it might be. So, um, and then notice, interesting, this is interesting, I doubt we're going to get through verse 7, so I'm even way behind on my own <laughs> lackadaisical schedule. But look at, um, interesting, verse, verse 1, they were the 12 disciples, and then in verse 2, they're the 12 apostles. Is Matthew confused here? No. no. There's two different words, meaning two different things. He's not confused. The twelve were both, right? They were both apostles and disciples, but we should talk about what, what, what it means and what, what the difference is. Notice in church world, we very casually refer to them both as the twelve disciples and the twelve apostles, and we all know who they mean. It means the same thing, right? So, so we're we understand that, but there are differences. An apostle is specifically one who is commissioned and sent to represent another, often with a message. So another word for an apostle could be an ambassador. And in fact, that's the word that Paul uses in uh, 2 Corinthians 5. Okay? The twelve were supposed to be apostles sent as representatives of Jesus, and here in chapter 10, this is what Jesus is getting ready to do. He's getting ready to send them as apostles, as ambassadors. Now, obviously, the, sh the one with the shortest sent career was Judas, right? Okay. He's the only one who wasn't an apostle, an apostle after the crucifixion and resurrection. So everyone who knows Jesus today is, in one sense, an apostle. In one sense. Not in all senses, but in one sense. Everyone who knows Jesus is, in a sense, an apostle. We are called to represent Christ. But, apostle is actually listed in, I think it's 1 Corinthians, as one of the spiritual gifts as well. There's actually, there are actually apostles who are set aside who have the spiritual gifting of being an apostle. So in other words, they, they really lean into um, they also usually in their gift mix have evangelism as part of their gift mix. They're really, they really lean into this idea of going out and representing and, and being sent and having a message. Mm -hmm. And they're constantly saying the church needs to do more. The church needs to push out. The church needs to do more. That's somebody with the gift of apostleship. You don't find the gift of discipleship 
anywhere in any of the gift lists. And because it's not a gift, and I'll get to that in, in a minute. But see, not everyone has the spiritual gift of apostleship. Okay? And not everyone who knows Jesus is sent in such a way that mimics the 12 original apostles. Some, yes, but not all. So the 12 apostles in the Bible were in both the strictest and the broadest sense of the word, they were apostles. But disciples? What about being a disciple? A disciple is a follower and a learner. Every Christian is a disciple. And every Christian is called to press hard into learning and following no matter what your spiritual giftedness is. No matter what your gift mix might be. Whether it's leadership and administration or teaching and shepherding, um, some of the special effects gifts, you know, uh, prophecy, things like that. Whatever, whatever your gifting is, you are called to be a disciple. You're supposed to press hard into knowing Jesus, learning from Jesus, and following Jesus. Discipleship is not a spiritual gift. It just is, if you're in Christ. I know people who say, oh, I really don't have the gift of apostleship. And I, I say, okay, I admit that's fair. That's true. Um, but no one can say, I don't have the gift of being a disciple. That's another way of saying, I don't believe in Jesus. I don't have the gift of discipleship. Well, you don't believe in Jesus then. That's part of the deal, is to be a learner and a follower. Now, obviously, the 12 were also disciples, so they were apostles and disciples. They were the original apostles and disciples. Though, again, Judas tended to fall a little bit short in a way that is more remarkable than the way other followers of Jesus may fall short. We all fall short in our discipleship, right? In some way, shape, or form. All of us do. So, all right. I'm going to read the next section, and then we're going to stop, and that's where we'll start. But the next session, section is verses 5 through 15, and it relates to Jesus' call to the 12 to do what we might call short-term missions work to Israel, to the Jews. This is, this is his call to go to the Jews first. And when we come back next week, we'll take it a few verses at, the t at a time. But here's what he says. The twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, go, no, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritan. Wow, that's the first restriction right out of the gate. We'll talk about that. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper from your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborers deserves his food. That's interesting. We'll unpack that. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy of in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, what does that mean? Let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, what does that mean? Let your peace return to you. And if anyone will, uh, will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that town or house. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment 
for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Whoa. That's like a little tease for next week. Ooh, I want to talk about that dust stuff, okay? Yeah, when can I shake off the dust? <laughs> all right? So, all right, let me pray. Uh, God, thank you for your word and its truth. I thank you every time, and it's because I'm grateful for it. And I pray that we'd be grateful for your word and its truth, and I pray that you would give us, by the power of your spirit, leading, guiding, and, and directing us, and then illuminating your text for us, that you would give us your spirit, fill us with your spirit, so that we would know exactly what you want us to know, so that we can be your disciples, who live in a missional way, and who live as citizens of the kingdom of God. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.